Hi, I'm Mike Nagrit, and you're listening to Hungry Magazine from Chicago, Illinois. Four, three, two, one more time. Hey there, welcome back for another edition of Hungry Magazine Podcasts. This week I sit down with Jason Hamill, who along with his wife, Amalia Childs, is the owner of Lula Cafe, and is soon to open Nightwood in Pilsen. I sat down with Jason about three or four months ago in anticipation of Nightwood's opening to talk about the old days at Lula, talk about the new restaurant, and to get his ideas on cooking. Enjoy the interview. Lula is from um, Tallulah Bankhead. Um, My wife was in a band called Tallulah back in the early parts of, you know, the late 90s. And uh, the band was named first, and then we just loved the, you know, Tallulah sound of it in the mouth. It just had a real pleasant feel and, like, sonorous quality, so we stuck with it. Which kind of brings up the idea that I know you, you started out as a writer. I did. Are you still a writer? No. No? No. I have hopes to go back to it. Actually, my um, mentor and thesis advisor recently killed himself. His David, David Foster Wallace. Ah, uh, yes. I've heard of him. Yeah. Um, so my formal writing, former writing career has been brought up a lot and in my, my own mind and also like that I've been in touch with a lot of friends from that era when we were in gra- graduate school together. So uh, I've been thinking about writing a lot. So. Was, was, that, was that something that you, you would have predicted? I mean, not that I... No, predicted, that no. I, I didn't, I haven't, I mean, I knew him well then, but this is in the, like, 94, 95. Not close enough to know if he was uh, depressed, but he was, I mean, in his writing, you could find a lot of clues toward that. But, and I guess he was very seriously depressed toward the end. And there's always that writer's sensibility anyway, so writers tend to be sensitive. And, mm-hmm. You know, the world, the way the world is behind your shoulders. Yeah, he was ex- extremely in it that way. Um, I mean, I guess there's interest, having been a writer, starting out as a writer, thinking about it. I know Leah, of course, she's a musician. Um, I think I read actually an interview with her uh, last year or two years ago, which was talking about the new album. She had said something along the lines of, you know, cooking is, is, is more of a craft mm-hmm. than an art. I wonder if that, is that something you subscribe to? Do you believe that? I do. I mean, I, I don't think there's a line that you cross when you move from craft work into artistry. I think that there are there are moments that have um, elements of both of those things happening at once. But I would say that life as a cook is more about craft work than it is about artistry. And I think it has, in my head, it has something about its uh, its ability to 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 reach a lot of people, um, to touch them in their in ways that are personal and um, timeless. It's a little harder to do that with cooking. At the same time, cooking definitely engages history and culture and even politics in a similar way that, you know, in, in an, can be an artistic way. And certainly there are moments that are creative and ideas that are that feel artistic, but I, I'm never trying to, like, access my memory and my, you know, place in America or anything as a cook as much as I am. Yeah, as much as I would be as a writer. So, But I, I just don't think there are lines. I don't think it's just a craft or just art. It's certainly just a, a lot of craft work and writing. There's a lot of time building 
sentences and thing. And Dave Wallace was a craftsman at heart. I mean, he was really seriously um, focused on the craft part of writing. But uh, and sometimes I wonder if the suicide has uh, you know something to do with the limits of the art, um, the, you know, the artistic uh, you know ability or limits of art. It's very communicate what you want to Yeah, and I think he had, you know, always was concerned about his ability to communicate emotions. Um, yeah, I know. There's no doubt of his ability to, to craft sentences and to, to be witty and smart. But no, no one would say that he wasn't the greatest uh, of his time with respect to those things. But certainly he, he struggled uh, as an emotive writer. And that's something that comes up when I'm thinking about cooking. You know, is there uh, how much can you can you show through owning a restaurant or uh, managing a staff or being a chef um, about how you think and how you feel about the world. It's, it's, it's limited in some respects. It's interesting to hear you say that, though, because, I mean, if anything, you guys have, you're definitely one of the restaurants that's taken it farther than most take it. I mean, the thing you think about when you think about Lula is it's not just a restaurant. It's, um, I mean, it's a community gathering place. It's, uh, it's, uh, you guys have introduced farmers to people. You've created relationships. Um, you know, it's not just about a transaction about eating. Right. But that's, I mean, that's what it was born. It was born out of that desire because we weren't cooks to begin with. We were artists who lucked into a space. And so I think that uh, it shows uh, it shows that uh, we began with that idea, like to how to reach out to people and how to create a com- uh, community environment. And only more recently have we become more serious as cooks. But I mean, I'm saying there's a limitation to that. Of course, I'm saying that at the same time that I'm, I, I dedicate all of my time to like the ability to keep that alive. You know, like to be a good owner and to be a good, uh, you know, thoughtful chef, chef, which basically means be thoughtful about my responsibility to customers and purveyors and employees. I understand what you're saying. I mean, I'm a writer and, and, um, you know, I was talking with somebody, a food person in Chicago who wanted to do a book. And I'm you know, as somebody's writing, you gotta think, oh yeah, let's do a book. But my first question is, why the hell do you want to do a book? You know, it's like, there are a lot of different ways you can get your message across and do what you want to do that's probably more effective or more communicative than writing a book, especially in today's day and age. Yeah. People don't read, you know? Yeah. And so I guess in that way, it's, I understand that sensibility or that, you know, it seems contrary, but it's not really think about it. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a it's a struggle, I guess. It's, it's a daily, it's something I think about all the, all the time. You know, it might be you know, am I living up to a potential? Am I, you know, stacking off on my responsibilities as, you know, a creative person? And, and I'm not just saying that toward my own work, but as the manager of a group of people, I want to make sure that my interactions with them and as an owner is still thoughtful and creative in the same way it would be if, if I was pursuing our artistic life here. You know what I mean? I want to be um, serious about the craft. I want to have a you know passion that is really visible. And at the same time, I want to have sort of an understanding about our realism about it that's not... Uh, it doesn't get in the way of that of, of that craft. Yeah, I mean, it's 
there's always that dilemma too if we only have one life to live. Yeah. And so it's like everything's an opportunity cost. Like, yeah. am I where I'm supposed to be? Yeah, and certainly having a kid definitely brings that up more than yeah. ever before. Opening up the restaurant brings it up, but you're changing roles as a chef. Bring you know, I certainly cook a lot less than ever before. And most of the time, spend you know, thinking about you know, health insurance or you know, tax bills or something really you know, really mind numbing. But um, you know. And I guess that's interesting because, I mean, you, as you alluded to, you guys kind of started out as artists who inherited the space. And, mm-hmm. and I guess the question I would have, did you guys have any of this in mind? Even when no, no, not at all. No. You know, I, I didn't think you did, but, you know. We, we didn't have it at all. No, and I, I mean, when I, we have interns who come in who have, you know, some interns are different, um, they're at different skill levels than others, but, um, you know, if we have an inexperienced one who maybe feels like they have a lot of catching up to do, I always tell them, I'm like, well, when we started, we, you know, we really had no idea what we were doing, and we did a lot of reading, you know, I'll usually give a, like a syllabus to them to get caught up, and then, that's what we did, we just... We studied a lot in the beginning because all of a sudden we were interested. In I read that some of your influences were um, like Jacques Pen, Alice Waters. Yeah. Um, I think one of the ones I read that I thought was interesting was uh, the French Laundry Cookbook. Yeah. I always talk about it. Well, actually, the last two interns we've had. I mean, the the book is it's like it's canonical. You know, it just it has this place in. In our culinary recent culinary history, that's real um, foundational, and I think that um, I just think it's a really well done and, and accessible book for young cooks. Even it, it sort of states the the place of of fine, fine dining ten years ago. That um, that's important for people to understand for where we're at, we're at now. Like if you know that you know some so many restaurants that open up. Um, each year, they, there's uh, there are obviously these patterns that we, um, that you can see and trends and, right. and everybody has a communal table in the chalkboard. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing brought up a lot now. But I mean, they, you know, the question is why, and you can say it's a, maybe it's a backlash against you know Chicago's identity as a, a gastronomic playhouse, or it's an import from the West Coast, not only of you know Alice Waters era like like California. Uh, farmer table sensibilities, but also of, like Portland, Oregon's, you know, every man for himself, you know, um, take on that. I mean, I think Chicago is in a confused spot now, and we're going to see what happens over the next couple of years. But yeah, and I tell them, well, I mean, why do you think, like, there's even a conversation about, um, or an excitement about places like Bristol and Motto? Like, those are really great restaurants. Why are they great, and why are we excited about them? And, I mean, and I kind of tell them they still have to they have to read oh, they have to know about the French Laundry to know about Grant to know about Alinea to know about you know WD50 to know about all these places that are important to the to what it means to be a cook right now and to the the like the contemporary literature of cooking whatever you want to call it and the French Laundry is is like is a seminal text and I, I mean my, yeah, my book is like in tatters just because I, I learned a lot from it and 
Yeah, as a primer for cooking, it's great. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, here's the ultimate way to make veal stock. Yeah. But it's also, like, it's a philosophical tone, too. It's like, mm-hmm. it's the importance of trusting chicken, you know, that yeah. they are. It's like, it's not just about trusting the chicken, mm-hmm. you know. There's so much more going on, you know. And, you know, and the, the thing about, you know, Keller still sweeps or, you know, um, where spices are kept in glass or they're blanching water as salt or whatever all the little things are. In the direction they swim. I mean, it's probably complete bullshit, but it, it makes you aware of the, you know, of the, of, you know, of taking care of the stuff when it comes in, and you know, not throwing anything away. All the basic like rules to live by. And I don't know. I, uh, recently, we joked about um, seeing a list from a kitchen of like um, do's and don'ts from somebody else's kitchen, not even you know here in the city. And they were really um, the rules were really um, uh, common. They're just common sense rules that uh, someone had felt the need to like type up. And what I was trying, what I was trying to think about when I was talking to an intern about why we thought these rules were funny that they were from they were from another restaurant. We're like these things that that you do, like keeping a clean station or um, you know keeping a clean uniform or sweeping every hour or handling products, you know, with respect. These are things that you shouldn't have to talk about. That cooks are that is your basic, you know, way of being, and uh, you learn that by reading about Thomas Keller. If you, if you haven't, if you haven't stodged at the French Laundry, you haven't worked there, you, you, you need to read about him, what he's done, and how he's taught his cooks to, you know, to live similar, similarly. Yeah, I know. I mean, I remember when we were there even like four years ago, and I'm sure it's not as true today. Um, but you know, we at the end of the night we went back there, and he was literally he was wiping out one of the low boys on his yeah. knees. You know, and it's like you know at that point he was already Thomas Keller, the legend. You yeah. know, he wasn't Thomas Keller. You know, because when the book came out, the restaurant is still not it, that book in some ways made the restaurant. Yeah. You know, that was I think what attracted Ruth Reich. Yeah. Know, and, um, but. And he was still kind of living the talk, I guess, which is, which is mm-hmm. really impressive to see. But I guess in, the, in some ways, it, you know, is, is there a, you know, a point of compromise for you guys? I mean, oh, yeah, you know, in that sense, you guys are in the French laundry, and not that you couldn't be, or that you don't have the best. No, we're not. There's just no... no we serve sandwich sandwiches, you know, and we serve 800 people sometimes in a day, you know, uh, in, in a really small space. There's a lot of compromises to be made. We Our prices are obviously very low. So, I mean, Lula has been about the schizophrenia of, of that dualism, whatever whatever word you want to use, of high and low. You know, I mean, French laundry is obviously just high. Everything is done to the, the you know, the best, the most perfect, uh, in the most perfect way possible. And Lula is about mixing those things up. So, yeah, we I think we do some, there's some techniques here that are as careful and, um, and done with as much finesse as they do at the laundry, and then there's you know the 80s to 100 sandwiches that we do really quickly today, and I, I think we do them well, but it's a sandwich, and the laundry's not you know serving 100 sandwiches right. in a day. It's totally different. It's like they're like 35 or 40. Yeah, and I'm. I would never say that we have 100% organic ingredients here. We certainly buy, you know, as much or more than you know almost anybody does, and we try just as hard as we can. There's compromises that have to be made with that respect too. Do you do you hear to the idea that 
I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be organic or that if, you, if you're certified organic, it says something about your willingness to go to a line. I mean, I guess my theory on it is, you know, is I've met great farmers who didn't bother to be organic, but they're sustainable. Yeah, I guess, I guess that organic is the word that I always just fall back on to, to describe, you know, um, non-commodity products. But most of the, you know, organic product that we a lot of the organic product we buy is not certified, yeah. and we, we don't care. And a lot of organic product that is certified that is being purchased by people who are trying to uh, promote that fact is really crappy product like from... Michael Pollan book in the Walmart invasion of, yeah. you know, organics. And it's happening on... Especially the case because, you know, in this um, climate where obviously only three seasons, uh, there's only available for three seasons and we're open for four. So that fourth season, which can be in in Chicago an incredibly long season, can be from, you know, December 1st until May. Uh, that's a that's a hard period for restaurants to do right by. Yeah, you guys are doing a lot of canning now. We've got something like 700 quarts of jars downstairs, which is ex- really exciting. Um, those guys, the sous chefs, really wanted me to get a pressure canner for them this year, which we did, and they just went to town. I mean, every single week, week we were doing 20, 30 quarts of preserves. Whatever was good, right? Yeah, and even just now, they're they're downstairs writing their brunch menu for. We were just while you were interviewing uh, Jason Vincent, we were running the menu for this next weekend, and we're ready to crack jars for this weekend. You know, for what's great is that it's not for like twenty-four dollar entrees; it's for you know ten dollar brunch dishes, and I'm excited about that. Um, why a second restaurant? I mean, I'm sure there's various reasons. Um, it, I, at first, it was because. I, I, even before we had Jason Vincent here as a sous chef, I, I wanted to open a second restaurant. It's partly because I've always been unhappy with the facility here. It's, we, we've been packing a lot of firepower into a really small space that's from you know hasn't been renovated in, from 1896. This building and uh, it leaves a lot to be desired. So I wanted to build from the ground up a real beautiful kitchen and do it, you know, the way I wanted to. Yeah, learn from what I my mistakes. That was one of the first reasons. Um, but it's become sort of the it's become a way of allowing people who we've had work here beneath us to sort of come up into their own and to to allow them to expand with us. So having a place for someone like Jason Vincent to to collaborate with on a on a menu and a concept has been part of become more of the, the majority of the reason for doing it. I mean certainly there's economic reasons we wanna, you know, like we want to provide for our baby and like we're trying to think of the profit margins are really, really thin, so the only way to do that is by having several locations. Um, for your giant salsas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought of almost everything. But um, this is also a collaboration between a friend of mine named Kevin Heisner. Um, so the partnership is... Uh, you know, this is the first time I've ever had a partnership where the, uh, the, other, the other member is going to be a creative 
you know, force in the design of the restaurant. So, I, I mean, those are the reasons, like, especially the promotion, not only Jason Vincent, but my general manager here has been here for five years. He, you know, he, he wants some other things to do, and the only way to give him any more responsibility is by, you know, starting a new project. What does building from the ground up sort of allow you to do that you couldn't do here? Like, a, what, uh, I've designed the kitchen myself, the entire, the entire thing, every, every, every inch of the space, and it's a very small kitchen. Again, I mean, it's not as big as I wished it was going to be, but I'm thinking about things like where outlets are and how much, you know, how the air will flow or where the stations are going to be and what the, how the walk-in cooler is going to be organized and where how we're going to keep fruits and vegetables and all the things that um, I've had to sort of do here in a makeshift form are going to have more uh, there have been pre-thought ahead, you know, ahead of time planned for and that's that, that's all I do right now is me, you know, meeting with equipment designers, walking through the space, feeling it, and trying to make sure that things are in, are exactly where they should be. I mean, cooking in this level in a restaurant that is this busy is really physical and, and demanding, and trying to create efficient systems um, is a, like my priority down there. Which, I don't know, is that, I don't know, if it, I, I always think about efficiency sometimes, it's interesting, you know, as an artist, it's like, for some, I guess some artists embrace efficiency, but it also seems sometimes like it's antithetical to yeah. doing what you want to do, do you, mm-hmm. do you put any stock in that, or is it just like, is it also just an aspect of your personality, or is it, um, I see, I see what you're saying, I mean, I, I guess, it allows you to be a better artist because you've got all your ducks yeah, in a row. Right. I, mean, no, I, I actually think probably. Um, I think a lot about how Lula was really. Um, it's a demanding environment, and that might produce um, the kind of qualities that we have here. And there. And moving more toward uh, a situation where the the kitchen looks a little more like other kitchens do um, might put a clamp on that kind of creativity. I, I mean, I think about that, but I also think that there isn't a way of going back to not knowing what you, what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like you can't go backwards and, and sort of forget the, that you've learned that this isn't the way to do something, and right. you, there's no choice right. in a way. And there's a lot of choices you would have made early on if you had known what you knew, yeah. now, so to speak. And this is the way to do that. Yeah, I mean, the people that like, we used to have a ping pong table in the basement at Lula, and like we would go downstairs and play ping pong, and then come back upstairs and make food. And uh, people have asked me, well, you know, it was great back then. Why don't we put the ping pong table back? You know, and the truth is that there now there's a you know, we do prep down in the basement. We have a whole prep kitchen and like ice cream machines. So there's no, I mean, there's, there's no room for it. But there's also like no room ideologically for it. It's too busy. It's too serious. It's too, you know, like, and you can't go back to those, you know, sort of freewheeling days when you know you, you weren't as busy and you could play ping pong in the middle of learning how to cook. Learning how to cook. Right, Bill Gates is Yeah, you can't go back. You can't go back to the garage.
square was square. in 10 years and it, it, obviously it's very different and the prices, the prices for apartments and for homes is much higher than it was when we started. You the always same. read about like, oh, the, you know, the rich people have invaded Lula and you can't, uh-huh. you know, but I was struck how this afternoon as I was walking in here, the crowd looks very much to me like it did, you know, you know, even five years ago in some sense. So I mean, part of that, it's Monday afternoon. It's the afternoon. It's not Sunday. It's it's a it's a justified you know if that I don't know if it's a criticism comment that the, there are you know the, the clientele has changed over the years here but I don't feel like we I, I'm sure there are people we've lost but I, I still see the same people I still know 50 60 percent of them on any given day clearly the the daytime is for the for the young the younger people because it's less expensive I think but um and then that, work here at night or whatever yeah um but I mean back to Pilsen we we definitely uh, Lee and I feel that Pilsen has a similar feel um in terms of its demographic than, that Logan, than Logan Square does or did um I also I like the way it looks. I like the way the buildings are laid out, the feel of the neighborhood, the just the, I mean, whatever the the vibe of the on the streets is is something. Yeah, that I, it sort of has that like it's like a ghost town of what Chicago was like. Yeah. At the turn of the century or yeah. something like that. And it's it was it's, it's although it's funny because it's like that Podmajerski guy owns uh-huh. the entire street. The whole strip. <laughs> I mean, I know that, like, I'm also aware that that's just one section of the neighborhood that has a particular identity and that, you know, there are other parts of it that are, and and I'm aware of being an outsider. I'm trying to find ways to, like, creative ways to connect, because I know that Lula was, the connection was slow and careful, and, like, I had lived in the neighborhood for years before. Leah was a cook at the coffee shop that was here before. It was easy to connect. And there, I know it's people are going to be waiting for us to, to screw it up, like to be, to have the price be too high or to be, you know, to not have the right, not hire enough people from the neighborhood or to feel like, I, like to, to really show our outsider status. So I'm looking for ways to You're just connect. extending the gentrification of the yuppie yeah, restaurants. Which, I mean, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure that's a really, you know, it's an easy argument argument to make, but we will be reaching out, and I, I think that we, we have a, a strong presence in this community, we try to, to do as much as we can for neighborhood um, organizations, and we're going to do the same or more down there um, with, un, you know, by ex- extending an arm to whoever we can to, to meet people quickly and to form good connections. Thing you think about when you think about, at least for me, when I think about Lula Cafe, is sort of this idea that um, you know, it's. I don't think it's unfair to say that you guys are sort of you become a classic Chicago restaurant in, in the way that maybe like Blackbird has and a few others. It's like they, you're, you're 
sort of iconic in a Euro, uh, cultural gathering place, your place that people just, you know, you think about, you're mentioned quite often, you know, and, and for whatever reasons. And, um, but at the same time, you guys had really humble origins, early beginnings. I wonder what those days were like, I mean, not knowing where you were going to go. And were you terrified? I mean, I know neither of you guys were culinary school trained. I'm much more terrified now than I was. Yeah, there was no stress then. I mean, it was stress about working a lot and being tired, but there was no money on the line. It was just two credit cards that we maxed out. We were very quickly busy, so we were able to make enough money to pay our staff. It was a very small staff. There was no, we had no knowledge of, I mean, we didn't, I didn't know who Alice Waters was, to, uh, you know, six months into being a, you know, a chef of a restaurant. We weren't a restaurant, we were just a coffee shop. And yeah, Phil Patel and Pat Bruno weren't coming Nobody in came. I mean, we were reviewed in the New York Times before we were reviewed by those people. We were never reviewed for those yeah. people, so they didn't even pay attention. They didn't get here until like 2003, 2004, yeah. right? Yeah, and we've been open for six years. Yeah, I just didn't... We were under the radar, and now we're we're definitely not going to be under anybody's radar. I mean, people, I still get people like from Chicago Magazine or whatever, Kenny Paul calling me up and saying like, "Oh, I drove by there the other day. I didn't see anything going on. Is, is, it, is it done?" I'm like, wow, you drove by. You know, like, that's impressive to me that they're you know that interested in what we're gonna do. And like one time in Chicago Magazine, there was this big full page thing that was about us and uh, or photograph, and the caption said, "You know, Lula Cafe impresses by its refusal to care about impressing." And like, while that's a fine thing to say about us, like we actually care about impressing people who are here a lot, and uh, somehow we come off as not not giving a shit, which is. I mean, I'll take it. It's great. I want to feel like I want people to feel real comfortable. But I'm, we care a lot. You know, we're, I'm still I still work like you know whatever 80, 90 hours a week, and um, everybody here you know has the same kind of sensibility. But so just I'm way more stressed out now than I ever was the first four or five years. Right, you're gonna have people beating down the door. The day it's a, and it's a lot of money. You know what I mean? Like we're building a place from scratch and. You know, we're, I mean, it's a hundred times more expensive than we, you know, we started with here. And now you guys have the kids. Yeah, and you know, if we, if we were to lose all that money, it could really affect things, or we would, people would lose jobs, and it's just more, it's much more stressful. I couldn't find it when I was researching to talk to you, but I think I, maybe I'm wrong, but did I read, like, you started out? I worked at a TGI Fridays. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm a... I was... I never cooked before graduate school. And, um, I had a friend who was working at, like, a California pizza kitchen, another writer, and he got me a job there, and then our manager went to, across the highway to TGI Fridays, and I worked there. Um, I worked at Uncommon Ground in Wrigleyville. That's it. So, I mean, I wasn't really... They were super clean. They labeled everything. You guys wear a lot of flair. No, I mean I was <laughs> in the back of the house. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you learn like any cook how to move through a station and how to a bunch of pans going at once. And, you know, I 
those are important things to learn. And I, I knew those before, you know, being a cook here in Chicago at Uncommon Ground. So yeah. um, Friday night at TGI Fridays is busy. It's very busy. Forward. Yeah. You're busting it out on a line for real. But I, I know that when I left Uncommon Ground, I was like, oh, I'm not going to work in a restaurant again. And then this came, you know, this came up, came up in such a backwards way that it just ended up happening. Um, you talked a little bit about how having a child has sort of focused you a little bit more on, you know, the idea of career choices or the idea of what it means to run a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, how else, has it changed other things? Has it changed, um, you know, I don't know, your approach to cooking or thinking or you, where you want it to be? Um, you know, how do you think about raising her, you know, is mm-hmm. it, obviously being food conscious is going to be an important thing or maybe not? Well, I, it is. I, I mean, it makes me. It makes me um, upset about the compromising. I mean, compromises have to, have to happen because the restaurant needs to stay afloat. So, for an example, might be like you know buying organic turkey or something. We don't buy organic turkey. We buy a naturally raised brand, and it's expensive. Um, and a Already, you know, I was thinking about switching to a, you know, organic turkey from a local farm, but I, it's like ten times the cost, and I, that those kind of compromises make me uh, like I don't want to compromise at all when I feed her, and it makes me wonder why I have to from force to compromise in this role, you know. Um, so. I don't. I live less easy with those compromises than I did before. I mean, as a cook, I don't. I haven't seen any changes um, to my style or anything because of a father. But certainly, as a manager of people, I. I mean, it's more just about like trying to do my job as well as I can so that I can see her. You know, because I don't get to see her that much, and I I, I want to be. I want this place to be really busy. I want it to be um, fun for the rest of the staff so they'll take pride in it so that I can feel confident that if I go home to give her a walk that it's going to stay running the way I want it to run. It's more like leading by example so that our employees can be left to be themselves and to be on their own so that, yeah, I can like pick her up or take her for a walk or see her for a little bit. Cause I, you know, as it is, like I might be here for... Nine in the morning until ten or eleven at night, and not, and not see her at all except for a few minutes. Yeah, I know. I know since my son was born, I'm ridiculously efficient, uh-huh. and I'm more. I produce more than I did before. He right. was born, I think, yeah. in the last time, yeah. which is crazy. It's time it's, for second guessing. Yeah, you know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta fit it in, and you want to fit it in, and it's so important. You know, it's like. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, drop me a line at mjnagran at hungrymag.com. And we'll see you next time. And in the meantime, stay hungry.